Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this extraordinary passage really we're looking at tonight. But thank you that as so much of the scripture, when we look at it to start, we don't understand that actually when we look at it again, it all points to the Lord Jesus. And help us to see Jesus more clearly as we study together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, keep your Bibles open at Numbers 21. If you've shut your Bible, didn't have it open, it's page 158. And I'd just like to read verses 8 and 9 again. Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Well, we're doing a little series uh, on some of the wonderful Old Testament pictures that help us to understand better the gospel message. Uh, last week, John took us through the Passover lamb, and he showed how the blood of the lamb meant the angel of death passed over the houses of the people in Egypt. And similarly, we're protected from God's judgment today by the blood of the great Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus himself. Well, this week we come to another Old Testament picture, that of the bronze snake or the bronze serpent story here in Numbers 21. And in many ways, it's a rather shocking story, partly because to our eyes, it's more than a little weird, making a bronze snake and putting it on a pole for people to look at, and this will somehow cure them of deadly snake bites besetting the people. It's rather odd, isn't it? So it reminds one a little of magic potions and strange concoctions. It seemed like the very worst of quackery. And worse than that, it seems like idolatry. It's not that many years since Moses had been up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And by the time he came down, you'll remember that Aaron had made the golden calf. He told the people that these are the gods that had brought them out of Egypt, and this was the god they were to worship. And the people had been judged very harshly for their idolatry. A golden calf, a bronze serpent, what's the difference? Isn't this a form of idolatry? In fact, later in Israel's history, we read exactly that, that the bronze snake had become a cause of idolatry. So 2 Kings 18, we read of Hezekiah. He removed the high places, he smashed the sacred stones, he cut down the Asherah poles, and he broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. So what was here designed as a means of healing had become an object of worship, and it had become a snare for them. But what do snakes on a pole have to do with true Christianity? What are we studying it for this evening? Well, the story comes at the very end of the Israelites' 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The children of, this, uh, of Israel in this account are the first generation descendants of the people that had left Egypt in the Exodus. But just like their fathers and mothers before them, they are complaining about God's treatment of them, rather than being thankful and trusting him. They are speaking disrespectfully against God and his appointed leaders. They are spurning God's provision, because the food they called detestable was the manna that God had provided for them each day for their 40 years of wandering. And as a result of their attitude, they brought God's judgment down upon themselves in the form of an invasion of venomous snakes. So the people cry out to the Lord to take away the snakes. But instead of that, God tells Moses to make a bronze snake, to put it on a pole, 
so that all who look on it will be healed of their deadly snake bites. All they have to do is look at the serpent and they will be healed. So what's it all about? Well, just a few things, first of all, to notice. First, the serpent on the pole is not preventative. In other words, it's not to stop them getting a disease in the first place. It is for those who've been bitten, so that anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. The poison is already in them, and without divine intervention, they will die. So the serpent is not to be worshipped, is not to be looked at repeatedly. Just once, they are to look to it. And if they do, they will be healed. Second, it's important to notice that the snakes in the camp are actually sent from God himself. He was the one behind them. Verse 6, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. See, the wrath of God is on the people for their sin of ingratitude, their murmuring and their rebellion. In other words, what they are facing here is God's judgment upon their sin. This is what they're facing. And as it is God who judges them, so it will be God who provides the means of healing them. But maybe just say before passing on, isn't it, how easy we find it even today to murmur and to grumble and whinge against God. It's a serious thing. Because when we whinge and when we complain and we murmur against God, what we're saying is that God can't be trusted. He doesn't know what's best for us. He's not treating us properly. It's not fair. And God hates it when we act and behave like that. So the snakes are from the Lord. It's God's judgment upon their whinging and murmuring. Third, the means that God chooses to rescue the people from his own curse is a picture of the curse itself. See, the curse comes through the snakes, and the healing from the curse comes through looking at a bronze snake. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And fourthly, all they have to do in order to be saved from God's wrath is to look at his provision hanging on a pole. They don't pray to it. They don't fall down before it. They don't worship it. All they were required to do was look at it. So what's going on? Well, we know that uh, Jesus read the Old Testament believing that all of it pointed to him. And if you've been following our series on Abraham, you'll see how much of it points to the coming of the Lord Jesus and is fulfilled in him. There were pointers and types and foreshadowings everywhere in the Old Testament that looked forward to the coming of Christ. Well, we might expect Jesus to skip this one. You would expect him almost to miss one out because it's shocking in some ways to compare the Son of Man to a snake. But that is exactly what Jesus does. He goes out of his way to choose it to help an old Jewish leader come to faith. In that famous passage in John 3, the story of Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, he comes to see Jesus by night. Maybe turn on to John chapter 3 now, if you will. John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to see Jesus by night. We're not sure why he comes to see Jesus by night. Maybe it's because that was the only time he could find Jesus on his own. Or as is often believed, he came to see Jesus by night because he didn't want anyone else to know. Uh, he was slightly embarrassed or he, he knew the rest of the leading Pharisees would look askance at him for doing so. Whatever the case, he comes to ask Jesus what he should do. And Jesus tells him he must be born again. Verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Well, Nicodemus doesn't understand. What do you mean, be born again? How can somebody my age be born again? So Jesus explains him what it means to be born again, to be born of water and the Spirit. 
And he goes back to this famous Old Testament story to illustrate his point. Remember the bronze serpent, he says. Do you remember how all the people had to do in the Old Testament was look at that bronze snake on a pole and they were healed? All they had to do was look at it. One day soon, he says, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And whoever looks at him will also be healed, will be saved. So verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 3, he says this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Five comments, really, on what John tells us there and what Jesus says. First, who is the Son of Man? Well, it is Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man who was lifted up on the cross in the way that the bronze snake was lifted up. See, Jesus identifies himself very often as the Son of Man. In John 9, when he's talking to the blind man, he says to the man who's been healed of blindness, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answers, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus says to him, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. In other words, I am the Son of Man. It's a, a phrase, it's a, a description that Jesus often used of himself. It's the most common designation that Jesus gave himself. We talk about Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah or as the Son of God. But Jesus often spoke of himself as the Son of Man. And the reason he did that seems to be that the Son of Man is used in two ways in the Old Testament. There's the divine Son of Man that you see in Daniel who comes in the crowds with great glory. But then there's a the human Son of Man. Uh, that you, Ezekiel refers to himself all the way through Ezekiel, son of man do this, son of man do that, referring to a human. So it's a, an expression that comprises the two sides, the divine and the human side of Jesus. And it's quite clear that when Jesus talks about the son of man being lifted up, he is referring to himself on the cross at the crucifixion. So the son of man, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, is like the bronze snake lifted up back in the Old Testament. That's the first thing. Secondly, that Jesus, therefore, is the source of rescue. Jesus, in the place of the snake, is the source of healing. The snake had been the source of rescue from the poison of sin. Jesus is our rescue from the wrath of God. He is the source of eternal life. Now, notice Moses lifted up the snake in the Old Testament, but he isn't the rescuer. No, it is God who is the rescuer. Moses is just, if you like, the agent of it. So who lifts up the Son of Man on the cross? The Son of Man must be lifted up, we're told. Who by? Well, there's only one place where the lifters are identified in John's Gospel. It's the Pharisees. John 8, 28. Jesus says to them, When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Who is the you he's talking to? Well, according to John 8, 13, it's the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are going to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. So the religious leaders, they are the ones who are going to be responsible. They're the ones who stand in the place of Moses. They're not the rescuers or the saviors. In Numbers, it is God who saves by means of the snake. In John also, it is God who saves, this time by means of his son. That's the second thing, that Jesus is the source of the rescue. Thirdly, Jesus is the one who is betrayed as the curse. You see, he is in the place of the snake. The snake is portrayed as evil and a curse. See, the, the, the snakes had brought disease upon the people and death. The snake is evil. And the snakes were killing people. And the snake on the pole 
is a picture of God's curse upon his people. But that is Jesus. Jesus, you see, is seen as the curse, if you will. That's what's so shocking about it. And yet that's what the New Testament says about him, that on the, on the cross he became a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteous of God. He took our curse upon himself. And then Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, the bronze serpent became a curse for the people to take the curse upon himself. And similarly, the Lord Jesus, becoming like the snake, becomes the embodiment of our sin and the embodiment of our curse. In becoming sin and becoming that curse for us, he takes ours away. As a result, fourthly, Jesus gives eternal life. The snake provided healing for the people. Look and you will be healed. And what Jesus gives us from the cross is something far greater even than physical healing. It is eternal life. The Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's what looking to this new snake, if you will, provides for us. Eternity, forgiveness, a life forever with Christ in heaven. Our sin paid for, God's wrath taken away forever. God for us for all eternity. And if God is for us, we'll never die. We'll live with him in joy for eternity. God gives eternal life through Jesus. And then fifthly, that it's Jesus crucified on the cross that we are to look to. So what is Nicodemus to do when Jesus says this? What are we to do today? Well, we're to look to him. We're just to look to him and believe in him so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what does that mean? What does that involve? What is this comparison with the snake on the pole? Does it mean to believe in him? It just means to look to him and to trust in him. The grace of the new birth is our seeing Christ lifted up on the cross and trusting in him. Nicodemus, he says, do you want to know the grace of new birth? Do you know, want, to, want to know what it means to be born again? All you have to do is look. Just look at me on the cross and you will be saved. See, that's the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? It's not what we do. It's not some exotic work that we have to do. All we have to do is to look at the crucified one and see there that he has become a sin for us, a curse for us, and we will be healed. We will be saved for all eternity. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. He was converted through this text. It's a rather extraordinary story, actually. No idea who the preacher was. In fact, the preacher that Sunday at the church he went to hadn't turned up, and the person who did the preaching hadn't meant to be preaching at all. But here in Spurgeon's own words is what happened. On January the 6th, 1850, Charles Spurgeon wasn't quite 16 years old. And he writes like this. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street. I came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't know who the preacher is, dozen people there. And yet that was the place where one of the greatest preachers of the last 300 years was converted. Anyway, the minister didn't come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, 
went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved. He didn't even pronounce the words right, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. A man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ, the text says. Look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I'm sweating. Great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, he said, look unto me, look unto me. When he'd gone to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew that I was a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I hadn't been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. It struck home, he continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I knew not what else he said. I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. See, that's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? Just look. That's all we have to do. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ, because in there we find all we need to be saved. It's not what we do, not how clever we are, it's not how much study we've done. All we do is look. And as the serpent was lifted in the desert, so the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, I hope we've all experienced that and know that. It's the wonder of the gospel. If we haven't, 
Isn't it amazing? That's all we have to do. Just turn to him and look to him and trust in him and it is all ours. But it's also the gospel that we hold out to people and there's never a better time, is there, than this time of the year. Because the next few days is all about the gospel. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross for our forgiveness. So let's pray that we make the most of the opportunity. Maybe even tonight, think of someone we can invite, people we can invite over the next few days to our services so that they can see the Lord Jesus Christ lifted up. They can look upon him and be saved because everyone who believes in him can have eternal life. Why don't we pray? And then we'll sing our final song together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is a strange story in many ways, and yet how wonderful that it points to the Lord Jesus on the cross, the one who became a curse for us so that we might look and live. Help each one of us to know that we look to you for eternal life. We don't look anywhere else. But also help us to hold out that message to others that they too might look and live so that whoever believes in you might have indeed the wonder, the extraordinary joy and privilege of everlasting life. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen.